All right, so last Sunday, uh, we, you know, we started a new book in the Bible called First Thessalonians, and I basically just kind of introduced you to First uh, Thessalonians, and we took a look at uh, Acts 16 and 17, because that's a, a recording of the early history of the church, the birth of the church, and the spread of the gospel, Paul's missionary journeys, and Acts 16 and 17 informed us as we looked at 1 Thessalonians as well, uh, what the circumstances were that brought that letter into existence, what produced the letter in the first place. And and we did that so that we might better understand uh, the letter as we go through it verse by verse. We looked at verse 1 briefly uh, in doing that, and and verse 1 is regularly referred to as just a salutation and if you, we don't normally probably use that word, or you may not use that word, but a salutation is just a standard formula of words in a letter uh, to address the person or persons being writ- written to. So verse 1 is the salutation. And what was the standard practice uh, for letter writing in the first century or in the ancient world? Well, it would be that the writer would identify himself first, then he would identify who he was writing to, and then generally he would give some sort of greeting. And that's exactly what we see in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. So taking you back there, uh, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and I discussed with you, Silvanus and Timothy did not write this letter. Paul is the sole author of the letter, but those names are included because they had a great deal of involvement with this church that was planted in Thessalonica. Uh, They were part of the missionary team and part of the lives of these Christians in, in Thessalonia. So, he includes them in the letter. He's writing, he's writing it, but he's writing on their behalf as well. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, he's writing to the church of the Thessalonians, so the church that existed in Thessalonica, made up of Thessalonian believers, and uh, it says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he issues a common greeting, very, uh, you'd be familiar with it if you read Paul's letters, grace to you and peace. So what I thought I would do before we jump into verse 2 is just give you some quick details concerning the, uh, this particular verse. Church, some of this you may already know, but church, it just simply, that word just simply means assembly, uh, basically, assembly or congregation. And so the word was used, that Greek word, translated church in your English Bibles, the word was used in the Greek uh, copy of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, they used it, to, uh, the Jewish people used it to refer to their assemblies, uh, their gatherings. So it meant, it was used to mean basically an, an assembly of the people of God. And so naturally, the church took it to themselves, the people of Jesus Christ took it to themselves. They also used the word to refer to themselves as the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. But the word itself just basically means assembly. So I think Paul goes further and he he gives, he gives it a distinct identity. So you, if just looking back, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the assembly or church, as it was understood, the people of God meeting together, the people in Christ, to the church of the Thessalonians or to the assembly of the Thessalonians, but they are in God the Father in the Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this assembly then is given a, a distinctive Christian or spiritual nature. What is the nature of this assembly? Is it just any assembly? No. This assembly are people who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which makes it particularly Christian, particularly Christian. Um, One writer says, in God the Father distinguishes it from any pagan assembly or association. So this is not just any assembly. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ distinguishes it from Jewish assemblies, okay? Because the Jewish assemblies, those who uh, met together, they were still uh, not following Christ. They had rejected Christ. So this is a particular assembly of people. They are those who are in God the Father, so they're not pagans, and they are in Jesus Christ, so they are followers of Christ. They are Christians. That is the church, not a building, but a gathering of people. And here specifically, it's referring to a local gathering or assembly of people in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. That is the church, okay? Also, just a note to you, um, where it says to the church of the Thessalonians, and it says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, these two names or these two yeah, names, persons, they're being placed side by side. These, this assembly, these people are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And just to point something out to you, because sometimes people question, you know, the Trinity. Like, did, did the early church really believe the Trinity? Uh, yeah. Yeah, the early, it's everywhere. As you read through the scriptures, like those, they'll push back and say, hey, I, you know, where does it say Jesus Christ is God? Read your scriptures. It's implicated everywhere, and it's explicit in other places, but it's implicated everywhere. The implication is here as well. This phrasing, in God the Father and not in God the Father and in this other guy too, it's placing them on equal level. So one writer puts, it is a clear witness to Paul's conviction concerning the deity of Jesus Christ because to unite the name of a mere man, if that's what Jesus was, just a mere man, however exalted he might be, with the eternal God would have been unthinkable for a strong monotheist like Paul. In other words, Paul knows there's only one God, only one, but this God exists in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And here in this introduction, in this salutation, and in defining specifically the Christian nature of this assembly, he says they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, putting them together because they are on equal footing, because they are both divine. They are both deity, all right? So, uh, commentator says, Paul could never think of God without seeing the face of Jesus, and he could never commune with Jesus without feeling the presence of God, and neither should we. So, finally, grace to you in peace. It's, you know, we know what grace is. Grace is that unmerited favor of God bestowed upon us. It's not deserved. We are guilty before God, but through Christ, we have grace, right? God's unmerited favor. And because of that grace, we have peace, peace with God, and we have a, even a sense of inner peace, that precious sense of tranquility, that well-being, as one writer says, that comes to those who have been reconciled to God through Christ. It's the result of receiving that grace. And these writers already have that grace and peace. They are, I mean, I'm sorry, these readers already have that grace and peace. They are the assembly in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is just expressing a desire that they may know it even more, an increasing measure of grace and peace. It's just a, a nice, beautiful, a Christian way to open this letter. All right? So that's the opening. Now we come to verse 2. In it, Paul speaks of the, the thanks that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy regularly offered up to God for the Christians in Thessalonica. So 
What I'm going to plan, what I plan to do the next couple of Sundays with you is examine what is specifically said about that Thanksgiving and then do my best to draw some lessons from this ancient letter for us now living in the 21st century. So, first, I want to point out two things to you. And um, stay with me. Some of this is a little technical, but it's. I don't always include all of this, but some of it I choose to include for your benefit just as you can kind of work through how, how do we approach a text? How do we try to figure out what exactly is it saying so that you see how, how I'm doing it and so you also can look at the text in that way and ask maybe yourself questions but of the text so you can get the right translation or interpretation of it. But here's the first thing I want to note to you. There are three participles. Okay, who loved English in high school? And I've asked this question before, basically two of you. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So don't panic right now, because I'm going to explain. I'm going to explain it. I just want to note it to you. And then we'll look at it in the text. There are three participles in this section here that modified the verb at the beginning of verse 2. The verb being translated, we give thanks. So there's, there's these three words called participles. They are telling us something about the giving of thanks that we see in verse 2. They're modifying it. We need to read these participles back to verse 2. We give thanks. And that's going to help us uh, properly translate the text. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show it to you in the text, okay? Number two thing I want to point out. The Greek writings manuscripts that our English translations come from, they do not have punctuation. Punctuation is added by our English translations, where they think, and I say they, the translators of the Bible, of whatever particular Bible you have. So we use the ESV, but you may have an NIV, a New King James, an NASB, an NET, so on and so forth. Those translators make decisions when they're looking at the original uh, copies of writings, copies of the original writings, about where punctuation should be added so that we can read it in English, our language. They add it where they think it is appropriate or right. And sometimes they even add it just to, you know, just trying to make it more readable to our readability or make it more readable to the English reader. Bible translations, you may have noticed this if you've ever compared, they do not all agree on where the punctuation should go. And that can impact how you understand the passage. All right? So that's why I've said to you many times, not all Bible translations are the same in the sense of value. Some are bad. Some are not bad, but not as good as other Bible translations. So whenever I'm approaching the text and trying to figure out what it's saying, I use what I believe to be a good number of solid Bible translations. But even those have some minor disagreements about things like punctuation. Okay? So you got me so far? So I'm going to show you this in the text so you'll see what I'm talking about. And, and then trying to help you understand why you might see differences among your translations. Why did they put a period here but the other one didn't? Why did they put a semicolon, but the other one didn't? Why are they putting a question mark, and the other one didn't? 
That stuff's not there in the original. They have to determine it from, from the context, from the language, from the words, and sometimes there's some disagreement. Now, in all of these things, beloved, uh, the differences are minor, generally speaking. They're minor. So even if you know, there's a nuance there that you don't capture because you miss it because the punctuation is different in your translation, it's not like it's gonna, you're going to lose your faith or uh, miss the big, important matters of Scripture. But listen, we go, text, we go verse by verse here. So we deal with these things as we move through the text. And so should you, as you examine and study the text to show yourself approved before God. So, um, I mentioned three participles. The, par- the third participle is in verse 4, so I'm going to read all the way to verse 4, even though we're basically looking at verses 1 through 3 today. Okay? And because you need it for the context to understand fully the nature of this thanksgiving that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are offering up to God for the Thessalonians. With me so far? All right. Okay, here we go. Now look back at the text. First Thessalonians 2, and I'm using the ESV translation. Uh, we give thanks. That's the verb. There's a verb there translated, we give thanks, okay? So the participles are going to uh, tell us something about, they're going to modify the we give thanks, We give thanks to God always for all of you. All right, just a couple of notes as we're moving through it. To whom are they giving thanks to? To God. We're just making some observations, okay? But they're important observations. So it's not just that we give thanks, like we're just thankful. We're just thankful for you, right? Because sometimes that's how we, I'm just thankful for you. Okay, that's fine. Uh, But specifically, they're giving thanks always to God for all of you. It's directed toward God. Why? Well, as we move through the text, you'll see why. It's because God was behind what had happened. He was behind it. He was ultimately responsible. God was the cause of the birth of this church, as he is every church, true church. (laughs) Um, He is the cause of the salvation of these believers, as he is the cause of your salvation if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. That is why the thanks is being directed to God, and God is the cause of the spiritual fruit that will be referred to in this section, for which thanks is being offered up, the spiritual fruit in the lives of these born-again believers, born again because of the mighty sovereign grace of God. So, all thanks goes to God, okay? Kind of reminds me like Thanksgiving in a secular home. It's weird. Secular in the sense of non-religious or non-Christian. It's really weird, at least it is for Christians, because they're giving thanks. What are you thankful for? I'm thankful for my house. I'm thankful for my family. But they miss it entirely. Thankful to who? You just thankful? I mean, thanks implies something was done for you. Are you thankful to the universe? Just this general idea of thanks, thanks. When you say thank you, it's given, it's directed towards someone because they had done something, yes? So in the Christian home, hopefully, Thanksgiving and hopefully every day of the year, thanks is directed toward God because you realize the truth. You have nothing. You would have nothing good apart from God's grace and love in your life. And so it is with the church. The church would be nothing. The church wouldn't even exist if it were not for God. 
And the good things that we see happening in the church would not happen if it were not for God. So to him goes all the credit, all the glory, always. Don't miss that. All right, that was all extra. There you go. All right, here we go. Ah, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly. Okay, we're going to come back to that in a moment. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning. There's the first participle. Mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 3, remembering, second participle. Before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 in the ESV. For we know. Okay, listen. Actually, it is knowing another participle, the the third one. Okay? So it's mentioning, remembering, knowing. We give thanks. Mentioning, we give thanks. Remembering, we give thanks. Knowing. Get it? That's the language here. Uh, But the ESV has, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So we give thanks knowing that. So the ESV starts a new sentence in verse 4, and they change knowing to for we know. For we know. And at least the for helps you understand that you would look back and go, what's that for? You know? Oh, okay. They are giving thanks because they know. But they're giving thanks mentioning we're going to talk about it, remembering, and because they know, or knowing, third participle. Knowing what? Knowing that they are chosen by God. Why does the ESV start a new sentence? I don't, because probably for the same reason the NET starts a new sentence. The NET also starts a new, new sentence, but they just put, we know. Uh, the NET is another good translation, and they, but they put in a note telling you why they started a new sentence there, specifically, it's because of the length and the complexity, they said, of the Greek sentence that just is continuing on and on. And so they take that participle, which is knowing, and they translate it as a finite verb, and a new sentence is started in the translation. All right. I think it's best to not start a new sentence there. I don't, I don't, I don't like the idea of starting a new sentence because it is one thought that's continuing on. And I think you, it's, it, you could miss it. Now, the, the ESV does a good job of saying for, so you know what was said before is somehow connected. But I'd rather just let the, let the sentence flow like the New American Standard Bible does. So I want to show you that. Um, I prefer, in this case, the New American Standard Bible, another excellent translation of the Bible, over the ESV here. So let me show you that. And again, this is, I know it's a lot of technical stuff, but we need to work through it. We'll jump more into the meat next week. We'll get a little bit into the meat of uh, some application that is today. But at least you'll have the reason and understanding of how the text should be interpreted. So let's look at the NASB together. It'll show up on the screen. This is how the NASB translates it. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Making mention of you. All right, a little different. ESV is mentioning you, but not, right? So there's the participle. Making mention of you in our prayers. Three, constantly. I'm going to come back to that, um, that word constantly because it's in a different place there than the ESV. We'll deal with that next week, okay? And I'll explain why. So you understand these things. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you. Making mention, mentioning you, that's the first participle, verse 3. Constantly, 
or in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind or remembering your work of faith and labor of love. So that bearing in mind, remembering, same word, participle, same Greek word being translated. NSB translates it bearing in mind. ESV translates it remembering. Bearing in mind, remembering your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. In the presence of our God and Father is also in a different place in the NASB than it is in the ESV. I'll explain that next time as well. And then verse 4, comma, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So it's making mention Remembering, knowing, all flowing from giving thanks, okay? So, what do these three participles that we just looked at, that are there in the text, teach us about the nature of this thanksgiving that Paul speaks of, okay? And again, remember, the participles here that I just showed you in verses 2, 3, and 4 modify the verb in verse 2, the verb being we give thanks. So the first one, mentioning, mentioning. We give thanks, mentioning. It points to the manner or way in which the thanksgiving was done. So this thanksgiving was done by making mention of them in their prayers. In prayer on behalf of the Thessalonians, they would always give thanks to God for the Thessalonians. You following me? Okay? You, just, you with me so far? All right. So that's the, that's the manner in which the thanks would give. They didn't just say, we're, you know, we're thankful. It was in the course of prayer, praying for the Thessalonians, they would then give thanks to God for the Thessalonians, all right? The second participle translated remembering in the ESV indicates the timing of their thanksgiving. So uh, mentioning is the manner, remembering is the timing. What do I mean by that? As one writer says, they were led to give thanks when they remembered so this is, I, hopefully this is obvious to you, I don't know, but either way, I want to make sure you get it, all right? So remembered what? What was it that they remembered that led Paul and Savanus and Timothy, while they were praying for the Thessalonians, to then give thanks to God for them? What was it? Well, when they reflected upon the wonderful work of God in the Thessalonians' lives, which Paul describes in verse 3, you can see it there, as the work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That remembrance then resulted in the giving of thanks to God for each of them as they made mention of them to God in prayer. With me? Okay. Now we're going to come back to that aspect of the thankfulness, the remembrance in just a moment. That's where we'll camp this week and next. Finally, in verse 4, just to show you the three participles, And this is again in the NASB, in verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So we give thanks to God, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering these things, this fruit, this Christian fruit or virtues of your life, and knowing God's choice of you, that God has chosen you, knowing of his election of you. One writer comments, and knowledge of the election of the readers was the ultimate ground on which the action of giving thanks to God was founded, okay? So they gave thanks to God for the Thessalonian Christians, and then we see the first participle. It tells us the manner of that thanks, making mention of them in their prayers. 
Then we're told the second participle, the timing of that thanks, it was when they remembered their Christian virtues. And finally, the ultimate cause or reason for the thanks to God was because they knew God had chosen these Thessalonian people, these brothers and sisters in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. He had chosen them for salvation. And that's why they were giving thanks to God. Okay? How did they know that God had chosen them? Well, Paul begins to explain that in verse 5. But we'll come back to verse 4 and 5 and the other verses later on. Right now, we're going to return to verse 3 and focus on the Christian virtues that led Paul and his missionary team to give thanks to God for the Thessalonians in their prayer. So we, I just want to do that legwork for you so you know why I'm going the direction I'm going with the text. Okay? So let's look back now at verse 3 in the ESV. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? That's what caused them, led them in the course of prayer for the Thessalonians to give thanks to God for them. It was these three things. Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Okay, of, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. That word of points to the source. It points to the source. So for instance, it's a work that comes from faith, a work that comes from faith. It is a labor that's coming from love. It is a steadfastness that's coming from a hope. He, de- he defines it there, hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, looking at the first one, work of faith. What faith? If this work is coming from faith, what faith is he talking about? In the context, beloved, it's not just faith in anything. It's faith in the gen- or it is genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the context. So it is genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is producing this work that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are giving thanks to God for as they witnessed it in the lives of these Thessalonian believers. Okay? Are you with me? Good. The NIV takes some liberties here, as the NIV tends to do. It's a little bit less literal, meaning trying to stick right to what the original manuscripts say, but it, it takes a little liberty. It adds a few more words that are not there in the original in an attempt to make it more understandable to you. So they do that here. The NIV, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, reads like this. Again, we remember, what are they remembering? Your work produced by faith, instead of just what it really is, just work of faith. But it, it, that's good, work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love or motivated by love could be another way to translate it. And your endurance inspired by or stemming from hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul and his missionary team saw in this young church of the Thessalonians and gave God thanks for is what Christian faith, Christian love, and Christian hope manifested in the lives of those Thessalonian Christians. So that, all of that was just lead up to our first thing. But hopefully, I hope, 
that that helped you work through the text and, and grasp what is being communicated here. Now, let's just look at the first one. Let's just consider it for a moment. Work of faith. Work of faith. So some considerations. Many commentators, when they begin to speak of this work of faith, uh, that is leading to the thanksgiving uh, that, that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are giving to God for the manifestation of that work of faith in the lives of these Thessalonian believers, uh, many take the time to point out that what I think you've heard many times said here, or maybe you've heard before, that true, saving, sincere faith works or produces a work or even good works, per se, uh, in the life of a believer. In other words, this kind of faith has an impact. It, it, it does something in the life of a believer. It'll show up. So even though faith can be a, it's a thing that's inside, it doesn't stay inside, it, it is manifested in the work of that believer's life, uh, works of righteousness, works pleasing to God, so on and so forth, okay? They take time to point that out. Um, a, a quote that is often attributed to Martin Luther, uh, but no one, can, no one can find him saying this exactly, but... Uh, what he says certainly implies it in many ways, uh, is a quote that says, we are saved by faith alone, right? We're not saved according to our works. We don't earn our way into heaven. We don't do something to gain favor with God. That's not grace. Rather, we receive it freely by faith through grace, this salvation that God offers to us in his son, Jesus Christ, right? So it's not no works are attached to it in that sense that it, we can do something to get it, yes? Okay? But that doesn't mean that that faith is all by itself and all alone and that you'll never see work produced out of that faith. So the quote goes like this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's never alone. The faith that saves is never alone. So commentators will point that out because you have lots of people going around uh, claiming to have faith in God or in Jesus Christ, and yet there's no real evidence of what that saving faith should be producing in their life. Their life hasn't changed. It looks very similar in many ways to those who don't have any faith in Jesus Christ. You with me? So commentators will say, look it, see, Paul's giving thanks for this work of faith. Remember, faith will lead to a life full of good fruit and works and righteousness and all of that. And I totally agree with that. I, I totally agree. In fact, one writer puts it like this, a true saving belief in Jesus Christ will always result in the mighty work of God that produces change in one's nature or disposition. A work of faith is action representative of the transforming power of regeneration. When you truly become a Christian, truly place your faith, repent, and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
You are what the Bible says, born again. You become a new creature, and that means you begin to move in a different direction than you were moving before. You're moving towards God, and and you're in the light. You're no longer in the darkness and running away from God, and that will have an impact on your life. And if you see no impact, then you have no reason to believe you ever came to Christ in the first place. Okay? So that's all that. But the writer, and that's fine, but I want to focus on something else here that I think is really more the issue, work of faith, or not even an issue, just something that we can draw from this, this work of faith. Uh, One writer goes on to say, you know, simply stated, the idea of this work of faith is the, the chosen of God, the elect of God, they're engaging in holy, righteous deeds to the honor of God. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's what they're doing. Those, this work of faith would be characterized by that. The, those who are believing in Jesus Christ are engaged in holy, righteous deeds to the honor of God. All right, so note that just for a second. Uh, so, so here. I want to talk about what work of faith maybe, or what work of faith would not be to try to help you kind of make sure you're, you're getting that work of faith. And I, I think this commentator has the best explanation of how to describe work of faith. Work of faith. Um, it is a work or activity that, that springs from and is motivated by faith, okay? By faith. For Paul, when we think about faith, faith then is, is the total response of us to the goodness of God seen in the death and resurrection of Christ through which man is redeemed. Okay? So it's a response. It's a, this faith is a response to what, or this work is a response to what we believe, what we have believed concerning the gospel. It's, it's work driven by or flowing out of the gospel that saved you, changed you, and that you now are believing in. It's gospel-driven work, gospel-motivated. It goes on to say, such a total response includes man's obedience to God and must therefore result in activity on the part of man. In this expression, the emphasis is on the work that faith produces. Paul's reference relates to the whole Christian life as is ruled and energized by faith. So listen, listen, this is where I'll have to stop in a little bit and come back, and I'm going to, but I want to give you something to to think about. I think that that Christians are, are confused a little bit. I think they get confused about the idea of work of faith or even good works. Okay, this work of faith, it's not just work. It's a work of faith that he is giving thanks to God for that he saw manifest in the life of the believers. I think Christians sometimes pat themselves on the back uh, because they're, they're doing things that are not really a work of faith, but that generally are considered good. But they're not a work of faith. Okay, so... Tim read this morning uh, from 1 Timothy 5, right? In the context of widows and and what is a true widow and who should the church get involved with supporting and so on and so forth, yes? 
You'll maybe you'll remember this. This is what he said in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What is Paul saying? Why would you be worse than an unbeliever if you don't take care of your family? Because even those who reject Jesus Christ and reject God take care of their families. Right? Because I think we make like a, a false separation. Like you're thinking, like, okay, there's us. Um, we do the good stuff, quote, and then there's all those other people out there, and they're just evil and wicked and nasty. Okay, well, they're lost, uh, but they tend to do things that look very similar, very similar to the things you Christian might be doing. They, they take care of their families. Okay? But is what they're doing a work of faith? Well, I wonder why you say that, because I agree with you. It's not a work of faith, because faith, the gospel, is not driving it. Faith is not behind it. Faith is not motivating it. Externally, it looks very much the same as the Christian who, in light of the gospel, is taking care of their family. It looks very much the same externally, maybe, from a distance, but it's not the same, and it's not worthy of thanks to God. So think about it. These pagans, these Thessalonians were saved out of paganism. We think of paganism, we think, oh, dirty and nasty. Yes, it could be dirty and nasty, but I'm just thinking about the course of a day, like civilization, because they had very disgusting practices within paganism. Disgusting. But when they're not practicing those disgusting things, they're probably doing things other people do, like trying to provide for their family, like going and working for an employer. They may even work hard for that employer. You know what? They may even pay their taxes, right? Uh, they, may, they, they may even provide for their neighbors. So like in Texas, do you think, you see all these people coming out and helping one another. Do you think they're all Christians? That'd be awesome, but no, most of them probably aren't, and they're, they're caring for their neighbors, right? So they're doing these things, but is it a work of faith? Specifically here, it is not. It is a work. It is even externally, it could be said to be a good work, per se, but not purely and truly good and not worthy of thanksgiving to God, and here's why. Because that work is not done in light of the gospel and to the honor of God. It is not done for that. There could be a host of other reasons that it's done, but it is not done for the most important reason, in obedience to and in honor of God. So, um, people take care of their family because it makes them feel good. That could be one reason. Because that's what they were told to do, I'm saying, the unbeliever. Because that's what they were told to do. They were told all their lives, you take care of your family, that's what you do. Well, that's what we do. Or it, it give, they like the kudos that they get. People might work hard at work. Why? Uh, because they like the pat on the back. Right? Uh, because they want to stand out. Because they want to succeed because they want more money. I don't, you know, there'd be lots of all kinds of reasons that's generating that work. But that doesn't mean it's a work of faith. 
And all the while, we might be looking at them going, well, they, they seem like decent people, fine. But they are not doing it unto the glory of God. So God's not pleased. God's not delight, delighted in these things. They still are rebels against God. They're still living in rebellion. They have not yet bowed their knee to him. They do things that look good or that we could even call good on some level, but it's not a work of faith. So I think this is what happens to Christians. They begin to do works not motivated by faith or the gospel, but just for other reasons that are not worthy of giving thanks to God. It's, it's, it's not because of their trust in God. It's not because in obedience to God and what he has asked them to do. So, for instance, an, uh, someone who goes to work and works hard, okay, but why are they working hard? The gospel would inform them that they are to work hard because they are to work unto the Lord. And they're to work for his honor. So not only will the motivation be different, but then all the details of that work will look very different because they will see in the gospel that when they go to work, God is the one that's provided them with the work. He's the one that's given them the ability to get up and work, and he has called them into this great plan through which he is going to make his name known. So when they are there, they want to make Christ known, so they live a Christ-like life in honor of God, and they proclaim Christ to their co-workers. That is a work of faith. But I think Christians have accepted, well, I'm showing up on time, I'm doing what I am supposed to do. They detached it from a work of faith. They're not letting the gospel invade them and take over in their place of work. They do the same thing in their marriage. Well, I take care of my spouse. I mean, isn't that what I'm supposed to do? You know, I mean, isn't that a good thing? Wait a minute. Let's make that a work of faith. So in the context of our faith, in the context of the gospel, the Bible says, husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church for his honor, for his glory. So that totally changes the context of that marriage. That's a work of faith then, right? Because that requires something that you don't have the power to do, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. You're going to have to rely on the spirit of God that dwells inside of you to do that, for which God gets all the credit and glory, but it changes that marriage, that then, and it makes it something that actually honors God. In fact, people come to me for marriage counseling. They want their marriage fixed, generally speaking, not to honor God, not so that their marriage would be a picture to their friends and to their families of what Christ does in a marriage or can do. No, they want their marriage fixed because they're tired of the fighting. So they might get counseling so that they can stop fighting so much because that's miserable. But still, their aim is not the glory of God. If it was the glory of God, then it would be different. Listen, we need, we need to live in a way that honors and glorifies God. So all my responses to you, all my interactions with you should be what honors and glorifies God. That's what matters even if this marriage remains kind of yucky and messy because the spouse doesn't want to cooperate, I am going to honor God because that's what matters. That's a work of faith. 
That's a work of faith. You begin to think about faith. And, and this is my concern. I think, I'm going to tell you one more thing, and then we've got to do communion. Um, uh, what was I going to say to you? This church was one years old, about one year old. Um, it's, a ba- it's a brand new church, it's a baby church. And uh, Paul had seen, they had come to faith, right? And we'll see as we read through the letter, they gave up their, their paganism, they turned from it, they turned to God, they're living for him, they're believing it. Why? Uh, I, this is why I, that gospel was so fresh to them, so clear. They heard it, they believed it, it was on their minds, and that gospel then was driving their behavior, that work of faith that was showing up in every area of their life. You know, that's the other thing. Work of faith is not like you go on a mission trip. Included in that may be a work of faith, or you become a missionary, you know, something big. Okay, that could be a work of faith, certainly. But it's not just that. It's every area of your life. How is the gospel impacting it? How is the news of Jesus Christ impacting it, right? So these young believers, they're like, they got it, they heard it, and you can't help but be changed, when you truly embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can't help it. And you begin to read his word. You can't help it. If you're a born-again believer, you can't help it. There will be change. But that's a baby church. Then, you know, you've been a Christian for a while, and you're like, eh, that's the gospel. That's, you know, back then. That was then. And you begin to forget the gospel. And as you forget the gospel, you'll probably still do work but it won't be work of faith anymore. It'll look similar, but it'll be different. It won't have the qualities that work of faith has, and it won't have the same motivation, the one that honors God, that work of faith has. You'll do it for other reasons. You'll do it out of habit, or you even will stop doing it because you've forgotten the gospel or you've allowed it to to sit up on the shelf somewhere. These believers were brand new and fresh, and I think on some level, that's what drove it. And that's why we spend so much time saying, you stay fixed in the gospel. Stay fixed in it. Don't leave it on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday. Are you in the gospel? Look at your life. Do a little self-examination. If there's nothing there, it's, it could be you're not saved, or it could be you're not in the gospel. You're not saturating yourself in it. You're not reminding yourself of it. And think of these things that the gospel tells us, or the scriptures tell us, you are not your own, but you have been bought with the price. Think of that price. Think how that motivates you to lay down your life for the Lord. And not in some big way, like I'm going to lay down my life in front of the train. I'm saying just going to work and boldly proclaiming in a very scary situation in front of all these pagans, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I love him and I'm not embarrassed about it. He died, 2 Corinthians 5 says, that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him for whose sake he died and was raised. That's the gospel. 
You know what the answer to self-centeredness is? The gospel. That's the work of faith. We'll come back. We'll come back. Are you soaking in the gospel, beloved? It's the only way that you're going to have the work of faith evidenced in your life. That's what drives it. That's what motivates it. And if you have no evidence at all, then you may not even be a believer in Jesus Christ because you don't have the gospel at all. 